Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Anonymous Investors Podcast. I am your co-host, the Stonkman, at the Stonkman. You already know what's good, what it do, what it be. It's your boy, Stonkman. I'm joined by God. God, what up? Let the motherfuckers know how you doing, what it be. What's going on, little dicky? How you doing, Mr. Little Dicky over there? Little Dicky. No shot, I'm little dicky. I think you got yourself misconstrued. I think you're a little dicky. I think that uh, you know, you might be doing a little bit of uh projection here. I think that's what's going on. You know, you have that little little dicky, and I got the big dicky, so you better learn, you better watch your mouth. I'll smack the shit out you. you better watch your mouth, put some fucking respect on my name. Long awaited rival platform to twitch.tv has launched it came out recently and guess what it is called kick.com and it was released and we all know that train tv was like oh i'm gonna get my new platform new platforms coming out don't worry just wait on it just wait on it and guess what it is out and it is very interesting how similar it is to twitch it is pretty much one-to-one identical to twitch it is fucking crazy how much it is like twitch so much so that people were complaining, but the creator payout is 95% on kick.com and Twitch, it's only 50-50 rev split. And that's if you're a partner. So if you're a partner, the best deal you could get is a 50-50 split. It used to be a 70-25 split where Twitch would get 25, but now Twitch is getting half your money, which is crazy on subscriptions. And on this other platform, kick.com, creators get to keep 100% of all donations and anyone can have subs and get donos from day one on kick.com. Whereas with Twitch, Twitch takes a percentage. Actually, I think Twitch lets you keep all the donos as well, but I think that you can't get a sub box until you become a, a Twitch partner. No, kick as in K-I-C-K, like you kick a soccer ball. Not that like weird fucking app, or chat app or whatever. Not K-I-K, but kick as in K-I-C-K. So here, we're going to play a game. And by game, I mean I just want to demo this to you. I'm going to share my screen, and I'm going to show you Twitch, and I'm going to show you kick, and you tell me what you think. So this is Twitch, obviously. I'm sure you've been here. I'm sure you've checked this out before, right? So it looks like they're showing some type of Valorant League that's going on right now. Looks like Charlie streaming, you know, Summit, Tyler One, you know, all the big guys, right? They're all streaming right now. Okay, you know, late Friday night, makes sense, right? Look, they're all streaming, you know, you got whatever shows. Okay, now here's Kick, ready? So you see Twitch UI, right? Here's Kick. Look at this. <laughs> Is this not identical? Look at this. It's fucking crazy. Obviously, substantially less viewers. It's a new site. It's still in beta, right? But look at this. Yes. Interesting, right? Very interesting. there on the left only has 500. Usually, the guys people that are recommended have like 10,000 at least. Right. But this just came out this past week. It's in beta. But look, what's the number one most highlighted thing right here? Look. All right. You have some guy watching shit, whatever. Look. Here, look, if we click through for a little bit, look, you'll see what's going on here. That's right. So that leads me to this next point. You can see that Stake and all these other offshore gambling websites are allowed on kick.com. And here's the most interesting part of this whole thing is that people didn't know this at the time, but it later was revealed that one of the big investors in the new platform was not only Trainwreck TV, but he also managed to get the founder of Stake.com on board with funding this new venture. So Stake is an equity owner in this new platform. And essentially, they created this platform so that people will still be able to stream any Stake streams on this website. And keep in mind, Twitch doesn't have an exclusivity deal. So basically, Trainwrecks can play whatever the fuck he wants wants on twitch and then when he goes to gamble he could just go on kick.com and gamble very interesting stuff 
What do you think about that? Do you think that the platform is innovative? Do you think like, what do you think is going to happen with this? Do you think Twitch will eventually revise their rules or what do you think will happen? Well, I mean, I think Twitch obviously is going to lose market share because there's other platforms that give uh, creators larger uh, revenue share. They're not providing anything unique to say YouTube in terms of discoverability. So I don't understand why you would go to Twitch um, versus YouTube in, in regards to that. You're getting the same discoverability and you're getting a larger percentage share of revenue on a platform like YouTube. Then you have these alternative platforms where you have more freedom to do whatever you want. And Twitch has very, um, very some bylaws that you can't say certain words, you can't do this, you can't do that. But then they're very uh, willy-nilly on it when it comes to their policy and enforcing it on certain people and not enforcing it on other people. And it seems like Twitch doesn't enforce their policies fairly. So I think, yeah, a lot of people are going to move off Twitch. They're going to move off that sort of uh, Mount Blanc uh, platform and, and move to a more a, uh, a more censorship-free platform, a platform where you have the ability to do whatever you want, a platform where um, they don't enforce the bylaws against one gambling company, but don't enforce the bylaws against another gambling company, a platform that, that basically looks out for your best interest and not the interest of them. Um, and their ad revenue and basically only supports gambling companies that pay them directly. And they don't worry about um, you making money. They just worry about them making money uh, as a company whole. And I think, yeah, Twitch is going to lose a market share. There's nothing really that great about Twitch. I mean, maybe the uh, infrastructure and, and basically like, you know, the emojis and such and stuff like that, which could be easily duplicated. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything special about uh, Twitch, but the problem with these other platforms like uh, Kick, whatever you said, Kick, Kick or Keek.com is you don't have any discoverability. So the only people that can go to these platforms are people that have already made on other platforms like, say, Twitch, YouTube, etc. You're not going to become famous or you're not going to become a person that uh, uh, is able to drive and garner a large audience basically just posting on kit.com you have to go to these other platforms in that regard and these sort of platforms are only good for people that have already built up their fan base so yeah i mean i i twitch the only benefit to twitch youtube and these other large platforms is uh in terms of discoverability and that's soon going to be lost as these other alternative platforms grow uh to the uh conglomerates and and basically these huge uh goliaths that they're going to become Yeah, this whole thing is um, very fascinating to me because it really is just a case study on like big companies who control a sizable amount of market share in a space just failing to innovate and just continuously fucking their creators over. Like we've seen this mass exodus to YouTube more specifically that people are wildly discounting. We saw Valkyrie go to YouTube. We saw uh, Lily Pichu go to YouTube. Ludwig went to YouTube. Saikuno went to YouTube. And it's getting to the point where you uh, myth went to YouTube. It's getting to the point where YouTube is just poaching everyone from Twitch because they boast a higher payout. And not only that, but it just seems like they're willing to listen to streamers more and creators more. Um, yeah, you you know YouTube versus Twitch. Like Google has their problems, and YouTube in itself has their has a lot of fucking problems. But we really do think the platform is pretty good relative to everything else out there. And Twitch is, like you were saying, with the emotes or whatever, Twitch emotes are like the biggest thing in the community is a huge factor. But at the same time, all the best Twitch emotes, I don't know if you know this, they're all by, it's called Better TTV, and it's just a Chrome plugin that you could just download off the Chrome store for free. So realistically, what you could do is you could contact the creator of Better TTV and those emotes and that, pl and that plugin and just develop it for YouTube or develop it for kick.com or any other fucking website. Like it literally does not matter. It doesn't have to be specific to Twitch. You could literally have Twitch emotes on YouTube and it would be the same thing. So I don't see any reason to not like do that. You know, most of the, like I said, most of the Twitch emotes, they're based on creators within the community and you could just have them on YouTube. Like it doesn't have to be sanctioned or like put out by YouTube. It just so literally it's as simple as the guy that made the plugin for twitch just makes it for youtube and that's it so that's the biggest thing um 
And like, yeah, like you said, these smaller platforms, they don't really get too much traffic. And like you said, it's going to come down to big creators going over there. But we've seen like Trainwrecks, he spoke to Kai Sennett and he spoke to Aiden Ross. And he said, if either of you resign with Twitch for less than $60 million, he's like, you're making a huge mistake. He said, you guys make them so much money. Uh, and he, you know, he says like, he claims that he had talks with the vice president of Twitch and some other very high up people. And he, and he said, oh, well, the vice president of Twitch told me that like, basically they kind of view all the streamers as replaceable. They don't worry about them. And it just seems like he's like galvanizing the Twitch community to get like pissed and to turn on like Twitch corporate and to want to either go to YouTube or stream on his new, you know, alternative platform that he's been championing championing uh you know for the last like three months or so ever since the gambling ban in october yeah i mean that makes sense he, he that was a large percentage of his revenue that just basically got cut completely off so i mean it makes sense that he would want to move to a different platform and you know uh basically have ownership in that platform and basically grow that platform so that he has control and so that the situation doesn't happen to him again in the future. And that's why he's taking a big step in making sure that he has uh, control of the platform and his partner um, in stake also has control of the platform since their interests are aligned um, in that regard. So yeah, I think it's a very smart idea to basically build your own platform because when you build your own platform, you control um, the narrative, you control uh, the logistics of everything and you control everything uh, both on a horizontal and longitudinal basis. And that's what you need in today's day and age when, you know, censorship is prevalent and when uh, companies are trying to control you and basically trying to uh, control um, your creative, your creativeness and your creative spirits. And no creator uh, wants to be controlled. I mean, they would have got a nine to five job if that was the case. And people want to have the freedom to do what they want to do. And they don't want to be uh, controlled and have their control. Uh, creative freedom controlled in that regard. Yeah, I mean, a, a really good example of this um, is someone that's not really that well known, but it's someone that I've encountered throughout the years because he does these like pretty funny and like super over the top controversial uh, reaction videos. And that's that guy Red Bar on YouTube. And, you know, he really just comes across as like very bitter and jealous and I think he it's a it's a bit of an act and very over exaggerated but like with what he did with his show is he does the Red Bar radio show and he does it on uh his own website where it's behind a half the episodes are behind a paywall $11 a month or $10 a month whatever it is and then he'll upload like long form videos on YouTube that he pretty much just says are like commercial so that you go to his website and you you know pay to watch like these videos or uh, these episodes as they come out. So, I mean, what he did was pretty smart. He has, I heard somewhere to the effect of three to 4,000 people paying him $10 a month and he gets the full share of that revenue. I mean, other than his overhead, uh, you know, bandwidth cost or any other associated cost with running the website. I mean, he's pretty much just pulling in profits. Like I imagine he probably pays like for AWS and then maybe, for credit card processing or whatever the case may be with some other backend stuff, maybe a guy to run the backend website. But other than that, I mean, he's pretty much making like anywhere from like 350 to $500,000 a year, you know, just from running a website on his own. And then he probably also gets a fair amount in YouTube ad revenue. If he's partnered, I would imagine he probably is because he probably meets the partner threshold, but I guess you could say his content is a little too spicy for YouTube. So there's actually a pretty good chance he's completely demonetized and he doesn't make any money and there aren't any ads on his videos. But nonetheless, the point remains the same. I mean, like you said, we're in 2022. You could make your own platform. You don't need a million people on there. You don't need a shitload of exposure. You know, you it's sort of this theorem of like the hundred true fans. You just need enough people that will go out and support your shit and you're fine. Like you could have a Patreon, you could have a Substack. like you don't need any of this other shit. You know, you don't need to be beholden to like these weird censorship rules or anything like that. Like Joe Rogan, if he wanted to, instead of taking a Spotify deal, he has enough money to where he could have paid to build out his own infrastructure, get maybe 10 to 20,000 people to pay him fucking five, 10 bucks a month. He would have made a lot of money. And the difference is that 
if he gets let's let's do some math on that really quickly, right? Let's say Joe Rogan gets twenty five thousand people to pay him ten dollars a month, right? He would make three million dollars a year, which isn't as much as the Spotify deal, but he could say and do what he wants. And realistically, for a podcast with a billion downloads a month, he probably could get a hundred thousand people paying him ten dollars a month. In which case, then he would gross twelve million dollars a year. So I think that's pretty reasonable for someone like him. And it's like, yeah, you make less money, but if your goal isn't to make money and just to be able to do and say what you want, and again, this is before any endorsements or advertisements he does, like if your goal is just to be able to say and do what you want and you don't care and you just want that level of freedom, then that's probably the way to go is create your own platform or just have like sort of crowdfunding through Patreon or Substack. Yeah, I mean, there is this sort of interesting dichotomy between, um, I would say, user visibility and, say, uh, freedom of speech and freedom of creative spirits. There is a trade-off there when it comes um, to that regard. So it depends on where you fall on the spectrum. Do you want complete freedom and you want to build your own platform? Or do you want to reach more people and make a difference in that regard and thus um, give up a little bit of freedom um, in that situation? And... It's, it seems to me like, you know, it's a tough decision to make because on one hand, you want to be able to free, you want to be, be able to be free and make your own decisions and not have anybody control you. But on the other hand, you want to reach the most amount of customers as possible and you want to create the most uh, social currency that you can. And this sort of affiliation or the sense of uh, community between uh, customers, consumers and uh, users of the brand, you want to have that as strong as possible. You want to have that with as many people as possible. And you want to have this sort of of like a interesting dialogue, decision, conversation with these customers around the brand. And you want those people in the community to add value to it. And uh, when you have a larger pool, you're basically able to add a larger amount of value and a larger amount of utility for your customers and basically increase um, your own social relevance when it comes um, to that and in that regard. But yeah, it's interesting on how information is being controlled and how um, you have to make a decision and a trade-off um, in this situation, just like you have to make a trade-off in most things in life. Um, do you want to be smarter or do you want to have uh, more of a social, um, like outgoing lifestyle relationship? There's a trade-off there. Uh, do you want to basically become richer or do you want to basically have a, you know, a Fun, a fun lifestyle, go out and party, there's a trade-off there. So the, the, in the world, there's uh, a whole bunch of trade-offs, and I see this as a trade-off as well, this trade-off and this interesting dichotomy between user visibility and um, basically uh, freedom. And basically each creator has to create their own identity and basically develop their own identity with um, the, the customer or the consumer or the user of the product or of the video or whatever art or artwork they're making. And they have to basically um, identify with those customers and their respective uh, peer groups in that regard and basically make the decision that gives them uh, the most happiness or the most content in their heart and develops the most amount of social currency, whether it's on a depth basis or whether it's on a uh, basically uh, wide basis. So you, you basically have to make uh, a decision in that regard and where you want to land on the spectrum. Yeah, I think it, like you said, it's an interesting dichotomy because it just comes down to either you're championing free speech or you're just taking a deal uh, and, you know, maybe to some extent compromising your morals or compromising, uh, you know, any sort of notion of like really anything you want to say that's somewhat controversial, you're just really suppressing it for the sake of like monetary gain. And, you know, I'm all for monetary gain, but I think at a certain point, like you just really should try to position yourself to the point where you really can't be bought. And then you're able to kind of say and do what you want and deal with the ramifications as they come. I think that's what most people kind of long for uh, rather than, you know, I think there are some people though that are, that are like really like stupid to be honest. I think that's quite a, quite a bit of people unfortunately maybe you might argue like the majority of people are pretty dumb to some extent or they just want like material possessions or they want money for the sake of like having a lamborghini or having a ferrari or having like some giant fucking mansion or whatever that's like you basically need a go-kart to get around which seems kind of tedious and annoying i wouldn't want that for myself personally 
but I think having money, the main draw of it, or like the main allure of having like even a fairly decent amount of money is just the freedom to kind of say and do what you want. I think at the end of the day, that's what a lot of people want, but they just go about it the wrong way or they look for material possessions when really that's what's going to kind of stop you from getting there if you overindulge. Um, but yeah, it is an interesting dichotomy as far as the free speech and monetary gain uh, discussion is concerned. I think there's a nice balance, but I mean, in a perfect world, you find a platform like a uh, a Twitter or whoever that will uphold your free speech and also pay you handsomely. But that's usually not the case. There are usually there are usually strings attached to whatever contract you sign, no matter how the company tries to spin it in a way where they're protecting and championing free speech. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily only talking about it um, necessarily on a monetary basis, but on like a reach basis as well, because these other platforms, say these Patreons, and, and they're obviously going to be smaller. You're going to have a smaller fan base than, say, um, you, would have, you would have on a YouTube or on a larger institution since they're able to push um, to more users and they have sort of this stronghold on um, their users and on the, um, you know, this monetary time. Most users spend more time. Most users or are, are going to spend more time on YouTube than they are on, say, Patreon, Rumble, or another platform of that size. And you have to take into account um, the social exchange that happens um, in that regard. And you have to make sure that um, you realize or you basically choose uh, what side of the table you want to be on. Maybe you want to be totally on on Rumble or totally on a Kik uh, or totally on a free platform where you have this freedom but then again you don't reach as many people so you can't make as much of a difference in this world maybe it's better to limit your speech a little bit so that you can affect more people and get your message out to to more people in that regard so it's you know you have to basically think of it this is not an easy decision to make it's not necessarily all about uh money but it's, it's about um your desire and enthusiasm and where you stand on the spectrum and how you evaluate uh, the two alternatives and where you want to land on that, uh, and basically, you know, make a comparison chart and choose where you want to where you want to go in that regard, and examine uh, many benefits and downsides to each, and basically recalibrate that that balance or recalibrate that exchange, and choose uh, which side you want to land on. If you want to land on both, maybe you want to land on completely one, or maybe you know, maybe you want to land on the other. Very true. Very true. And as far as like a monetary perspective, I just want to touch on this. I mean, even Patreon and Substack, like they have a lot of creators that tend to do pretty well, even if, even though they're like technically crowdfunded. I'm just looking at a, like Tim Dillon, the Tim Dillon show Patreon. Um, you know, he earns roughly like $213,000 a month and he's got about 34,000 people supporting him. So, I mean, that's pretty good. Those are good numbers for someone who's kind of uh out on their own and he has the fifth largest patreon and he only launched it in 2019 so um but yeah i mean that's really good like 200,000 a month and then obviously he makes money on youtube adsense he tours he does specials right cuz he's a comedian so just on patreon alone he's making you know 2.4 million so it's very 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 much within the realm of possibility that he all in is probably making Anywhere from like six to eight million dollars a year. Also, you have to factor in his merch too. Yeah, so Tim Dillon might be making uh get it all up. I mean, that's gotta be what how much you think he makes a year. Um, so two point four million right now just from Patreon. He does touring, he has his podcast. He has a, he he does uh hang on one second <laughs> he uh two point four million from Patreon he has merch um he has his podcast that generates YouTube AdSense he does uh you know he does other shows he does other YouTube videos like skits other social media platforms um you know make specials that he'll turn around and he'll sell his special in Netflix for you know three million two million whatever payout right maybe 5 million. Cause he's like getting kind of big now. Um, so, you know, Netflix or Amazon or whoever will, 
you know, he'll shop his special around his, his new hour and, uh, you know, they'll offer to buy it or whatever the case may be. But, you know, it's just one of these things where, like, realistically, when you think about how many different ad, like, how many different revenue streams he has, I mean, he has quite a bit. He's probably got it anywhere from, like, five to six main revenue streams. And if he's making 2.4 just on Patreon, I would think he's probably making anywhere from six to eight million a year, I think is, like, very reasonable. For someone in you know his position. Wow, I mean, he, that guy must have like a very um, loyal and very uh, devout fan base that keeps coming back and resubscribing each and every month and doesn't cancel their subscription. For him to have that many Patreon users, I mean, we don't even know how much he's his, how much he's selling in merch. His merch could be huge as well. Oh, I mean. It seems like uh, today, in today's uh, day and age, uh, a lot of these comedians, they they uh, are going to these platforms. They're signing less and less deals with uh, Netflix. They're signing less and less deals with these traditional um, movie studios because we see the wokeness of these movie, of these movie studios and uh, the lack of um, comedy in general, the degradation of comedy in general. And we see comedy basically eroding since you're unable to speak your mind and basically say... Uh, what you feel is right and what you feel you basically unable to reveal uh the truth and reveal uh what's funny is you have to be able to reveal the, tr the truth in order to reveal what's funny i mean so it, tim dylan i mean this guy i think he's actually gonna blow up even more than he's than he than he has right now i wouldn't be surprised if he doubles doubles his income within the next five years i mean this guy is just like the start of his career, he's nowhere near uh, being tapped out in what he can achieve. Yeah, you see this a lot. Uh, you're talking about like comedians. Like I love uh, comedy. I've been a big fan of stand-up comedy. I think there are a lot of really good people that are coming up now. And they're coming up on like a different wave where they're not even going to Netflix anymore or HBO or Amazon and shopping their special around, you know, the hour, their hour-long special. Um, like in the case of, you know, him Dylan, like he went to Netflix and he shopped his most recent special around, but we're seeing a huge wave of people just putting out their specials for free on YouTube. And Shane Gillis was one of the first people to do that. He was the guy that was on SNL or supposed to be, he was on SNL for one day and they canceled him because uh, they found a clip of him calling someone the C word or whatever. Um, but, you know, he released his special, uh, he, you know, record a full special live in Austin, released it a year ago, and it has 8.2 million views. And then we just saw uh, Ari Shafir, who was canceled for uh, Kobe Bryant uh, helicopter comments after Kobe died. And he just released his special about a month ago, and it already has like 5 million views. So, you know, I think he'll likely surpass um, Shane Gillis. I mean, it's already a month old, and it has 5 million views, and Shane Gillis has 8.2. Uh, we saw Mark Norman do the same thing. He's another guy coming up, another uh, New York comic. He has 11 million views on his Out for Lunch special that came out two years ago. Uh, there's obviously Stavros, who was from the uh, Come Town podcast. He released his special six months ago. That already has 4 million views, another like New York comic. So, yeah, these guys have been doing pretty good. And their main draw is like, yeah, they get the YouTube ad revenue, and that's been pretty good. But the main draw is they have more eyeballs on whatever the fuck they're doing. And they have their Patreons. They have their podcasts. They have merch. They do touring. So they have like four or five different income streams. And they're able to fill those out just by releasing their special for free, monetizing it. And YouTube has been pretty good with stuff like that. Like they, <clears throat> they flag videos for like comments that they look at as like, whatever quote unquote hateful and that's like the ai that does that and then they look at it and review it and they go oh he's on a stage let it ride that's pretty much how they look at it they're like oh he's on a stage okay it's just a joke and then they just you know get rid of all the demonetization on comedians that are on stage making uh comments that are controversial because they understand context and they understand that in that setting the comedian's not really looking to hurt anyone or offend anyone they know that it's just jokes, and at the end of the day, they're just putting on a performance. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you look at it, uh, comedians do um, get, in some sense, more freedom than the rest of the public, just like rappers um, get more freedom in their songs to say um, things 
that the rest of the public wouldn't get the same um, sort of freedom to do without some sort of public backlash. And they do get some freedom, but there still is this sort of push that's fretting um, and stifling down into uh, comedy alone from the general culture. And it's kind of stifling creativity of uh, comedians in general. Like you look at um, Chris Rock, he's toned it down, you know, a bunch. I would say even Dave Chappelle, he's toned it down a bunch from his earlier days. I mean, he's still. Um, oh, absolutely pretty- not. Absolutely not. Dave Chappelle did not tone it down. Sorry, I got to jump in. I, right mean, I think he toned it down from his earlier He days absolutely did not. Did you see his SNL? Did you see his SNL monologue? No. Oh, I'll pull it up. Remember how all the SNL people were trying to like cancel him? They're like, hey, we don't want him. Blah, blah, blah. And they were going nuts. Here, I'll play a clip of his uh, SNL monologue. You got to hear this. Everyone else can hear this too. I'll play it for everyone. Play well, for I'm not saying completely, completely toned it down. But I just oh, no. He, I think he, he was like much doubled and tripled down. He doesn't, he doesn't give a fuck. He goes after, um, he makes a lot of jokes that are like what people would say are transphobic or whatever term you want to use. But he didn't tone it down. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Chappelle. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, Before I start tonight, I just wanted to read a brief statement that I prepared. I denounce anti-Semitism in all its forms. <laughs> and I stand with my friends in the Jewish community. And that, Kanye, is how you buy yourself some time. <laughs> I got to tell you guys, I've probably been doing this uh, 35 years now. And early in my career, I learned that there are two words in the English language that you should never say together in sequence. And those words are the and juice. (laughs) I've never heard someone do good after they said that. (laughs) Kanye's gotten into some scrapes before. Normally when when he's in trouble, I pull up, I pull up immediately. But this time I was like, you know what? Uh, let me see what's gonna happen first. I just wanna see. I just wanna see where this is all going. <laughs> Can't remember how it started. Vaguely, I remember it started with a tweet, strange tweet. It was like, um, I'm feeling a little sleepy. I'm gonna give me some rest, but when I wake up, I'm gonna go DEFCON 3. <laughs> On the Jews. <laughs> and then he just went to bed. <laughs> I was up all night worried. What is he going to do to the Jews? <laughs> I grew up around Jewish people. I have a lot of Jewish friends. So I'm not freaked out by your culture. I know a little bit about it just from hanging around. I'd be like, yo, yo, let's go out at school tomorrow. They'd be like, we can't go out. It's Shanana tomorrow. I'd be like, where? <laughs> what is Shanana? I had so many questions. Why do some of your people dress like Run DMC? <laughs> Kanye woke up from that nap. He went right to work. <laughs> A year ago, I'd seen him on a podcast called Drink Champs, a great show, uh, and, and it was it was an amazing appearance. Uh, Noriega and them were there, the rappers that I loved, and they all had their gold chains and stuff on. And uh, Kanye said, only millionaires wear chains. They said, what? He said, I'm a billionaire. Billionaires don't wear their money on their body. I took my chain and I said, oh, snap. <laughs> It was a good appearance. It was fun and funny. But when he woke up, he went on Drink Champs again. This time, he was on one. He was mad about something. He said, I can say anti-Semitic things. And Adidas can't drop me. Now what? Adidas dropped that nigga immediately. 
Basically, Adidas was founded by Nazis. And they were offended. I guess the students have passed the teacher. It's a big deal. He had broken the show business rules. Is this a rule? You know, the rules of perception. If, if they're black, then it's a gang. If they're Italian, it's a mob. But if they're Jewish, it's a coincidence and you should never speak about it. <laughs> Kanye got in so much trouble, Kyrie got in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I guess he hasn't turned uh tuned it down oh he he turned yo he turned it up after he signed that netflix deal or whatever for 60 million he's like i don't give a fuck he doesn't give a shit uh joe rogan was talking about one time hanging out with him and they were watching a fight and they were sitting like ringside and the guy came over the security guy and he's like yo you guys gotta move and the guy says i'm dave Chappelle. i ain't fucking moving get the fuck out of here and joe rogan just started dying of laughter He's just like, fuck this shit. I'm rich. I'm Dave Chappelle. I'm not fucking moving, dickhead. <laughs> and then the guy looked at him like, oh, shit, sorry. <laughs> he got away with that? Like, he wasn't the, what was this, a UFC event, obviously, right? Uh, No, it wasn't even a UFC event. I think it was some, like, boxing fight or something that was in Dubai. Um, I don't know who it was. What was, like, one of the biggest boxing fights recently that was in, like, Dubai or, like, the it Middle East? Floyd Mayweather against... Um, one of those KSI brothers, or the guy's name is. Oh, Dead G? That fight happened already? Yeah, I think that's probably what it was. Really? I didn't even know that Mayweather versus Dead G happened already. Oh, it happened like a month ago? What the fuck? Yeah, that's probably what it was then. Shit, man. Damn. I didn't even know that this uh, this fight happened. Why did he fight Dead G anyway? Dead G's not like a good fighter. Like, I don't even understand it. It's like fucking dumb. That's the point. You get money. People paid for this shit? This was retarded. What the fuck? I don't know. That shit is dumb, bro. That shit is so dumb. What did it end in? The sixth round, it looks like? Damn. TKO? Yeah, and he was playing with him the whole He was playing with him the whole fight. He was like... Yeah, of course. He could have ended it fucking round one. He was dancing around doing circle. Like you have to watch it, the, the clips. He was like, "Oh, really I'll watch it." It was. It looks like the zone has clips. I'll, I'll watch. It, it looked like he was doing the Macarena in the middle of the ring during the rounds. All right. So here's something else I wanted to ask you about. You know, we spoke a lot about crypto last episode, but what happened with Crypto.com? You briefly mentioned this to me offline. Oh yeah, crypto. So Crypto.com, right? Basically, was founded by this guy um, called Chris. Mar Marjolak, and if you look into the history of this guy, um, this Chris, you see that he's this, he's in some sense, this sort of fraudster, um, con man, swindler. Um, he has previous ventures um, that went bankrupt um, and, and basically he lost millions of dollars in previous companies. So I would be very wary of this, com of, of this company, crypto.com. And it might turn out to be another FTX situation. So a little bit about his um, back history and some red flags that I see with crypto.com. Uh, in 2009, right, he founded this company. Uh, this was 2004. He founded this company in Hong Kong, basically. And it was this manufacturing plant that produced... Um, basically like a hard drive or USB, you know, those things that you stick in your computer that store um, files or whatever. So he founded this company that sold USBs, hard drives and products like that. And he grew to $81 million in sales in three years. And later on, right, he was found out to be selling um, defective merchandise, defective hard drives and defective shipments. Um, and a client um, called Dexon, who's one of his, his largest purchase, largest purchasers of uh, hard drives and USB devices. They purchased over $9 million in these devices over uh, two years. Um, they basically sued him and there was a judgment against him that caused his company to go bankrupt. Um, and so, so, and he admitted he had to be forced to admit 
that he knew that these um, devices were uh, defective and that he knowingly sold them. So, like, I think there's a lot of uh, reputational risk uh, when you look at who's running Crypto.com, and I personally wouldn't trust him with my crypto. Uh, looking at the FTX situation, looking at at the past history of this guy, looking at um, the fact that he previously um, founded other companies besides besides Starline, uh, Marzalak, and Techrom that also went bankrupt, and it seems to me like this guy constantly borrows money, and his, the companies that he uh, founds or founded they always go bankrupt, and it seems to me there's always this sort of uh, Fraudulent, uh, fraudulent dichotomy that exists between his company, and he's he's always doing like very risky stuff. He's he's always um, factoring his receivables in an irresponsible manner. Um, he's guaranteeing uh, the debt in an irresponsible manner, in which he can't personally guarantee that he's he's personally guaranteeing it anyway when he has no um, collateral to do so. And I just wouldn't trust this guy based off his past history. Um, with selling defective hard drives, um, basically founding other companies that were uh, scandalous or, or fraudulent, uh, you could say. And there was the connection with one of his companies. This was connected to uh, basically uh, the Paradise Papers. I don't know if you remember that. It was basically this sort of, it was related to the Panama Papers. And he was basically, you know, like hiding uh, funds in offshore tax havens. So that makes me worry about what is he doing with the money that customers deposit on crypto.com? Is he going to take your money and bring it over to an offshore tax haven? Um, he obviously knows how to do it since he was um, involved in the Paradise Papers um, long ago. So he has the know-how to do so. So I just wouldn't trust this guy. And I think I'm going to predict, predict this now. I think crypto.com has a lot of red flags. And I wouldn't be surprised that if they're the next one to fall. Them and the uh, KuCoin exchange, those two are going to be the next two to fall since this guy is just a, uh, a complete scumbag and he acts in a very suspicious way and he's simply untrustworthy in the way he acts. Absolutely. And I feel like this is just a PSA that I have to make like pretty regularly but I will continue to make this PSA and that's I believe that no one should hold their crypto whatsoever on any fucking centralized exchange. I'm just going over a list here and it's the biggest cryptocurrency hacks and scams. So we have like my Bitcoin in 2011, $2 million hack in July of 2012. We have Bitcoin savings and trust $3 million hack. In 2014, this is right before April 2014, we have Mount Gox, which was $450 million. Then we have BitPay 1.8, BitStamp 5.2, Cripsy at 9.5. Um, let's see, what else we have? Gatecoin at $2 million, CoinCheck at $400 million, OneCoin at $50 million, NiceHash at 62. Uh, Bitcoin Global at 50 million, BitGrail at 170, Parity at 160, Bitfinex at 77 million. Then we have Tether at 30 million. You know what I think? And then we just keep going and then think about all the fucking collapses that happened this year. Yeah, you know what think I think of about Luna, think of Three Arrows Capital, think of FTX, think of um, a Voyager went under. Think of Celsius. Um, now it looks like Genesis is going to go under. I mean, how many fucking things have to collapse before you sit there and realize that, like, you need to own your own things and you need custody of your own coins? When are people going to wake up? Wake up! This is the this is it. This is it. But you know what? I will say this: some people are starting to wake up because I saw something on the Bitcoin subreddit that was actually um, pretty awesome. And it was about Bitcoin being moved off exchanges at a record high. So here's what I saw. Exchange outflows hit historic highs as Bitcoin investors engage in self-custody. So some people are finally fucking learning. And it looks like there's a mass exodus of Bitcoin off exchanges. And it looks like it's roughly about $3 billion, which is so awesome to see.
And I love it. I think that people need to do this. This is very important and it will inevitably push the price of Bitcoin up 100%. Yeah, I think granted a lot of these hacks that happen on these crypto exchanges, they're probably um, funded by state, actor, state actors and um, other governments. But I, if you research a lot of these hacks, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not the people on the inside that are, that are actually hacking the uh, system. People that work for the company uh, Coinbase, other people that work for the company um, Kraken, or the people that work for um, Crypto.com. Like a lot of these hacks probably happen from employees and, and employees that work for uh, this particular company. So these these hacks are probably um, internal hacks. So I mean, you have to be very aware of where you store your crypto, and you should store your crypto offline. Um, you know, since we saw. What happened with FTX, that could very easily happen again. Don't think it can't. And don't think your, your money can't be hacked off of one of these exchanges. And the best custodian is always yourself, not other people. You're, you are always the best custodian. And so you should custodian your assets. So, you know, the World Cup's been going on. It's in full force. It looks like Croatia pulled a major upset. Looks like uh, Brazil sadly lost. Uh, looks like Argentina's advancing. And it looks like Portugal's advancing to the quarterfinals. They play soon. I believe they played Morocco. And interestingly enough, um, Ronaldo, obviously Portuguese, a part of that Portugal national team, he actually just signed a $210 million per year deal to join Al Nazir in Saudi Arabia. I remember we spoke about this very briefly. My question to you is, would you take this deal? Would you take the money and run if you were Ronaldo like he did? Or would you say, you know what, I don't want to play in that league. I don't want to play in that country. And would you pass on the opportunity? So he took the deal. Would I pass on the opportunity? Am I, am I stupid? $200 million per year. Why would I pass on that? Is anybody else going to match that, that offer or give me more money? No, I'm not going to pass on that. I mean, Ronaldo is getting up there. I would, I would guess so, to venture he's probably 38 years old now. I mean, he's still at the top of his game, but he doesn't have much year left in his career. And he, he should maximize the amount of money that he makes. And I would take that in a heartbeat. I mean, 20, $210 million, whatever it is. I mean, yeah, I would be playing in Saudi Arabia. I'd be going over there immediately. I would be, you know, I'd be sitting at the uh, king and prince's house for dinner. I would be, you know, uh, saluting them. I would be doing whatever I had to do to make sure that I got my uh, $200 million. And I wouldn't feel sorry for it if there was public backlash. Too bad. I mean, money cures all public backlash. Um, yeah, and I would, I would basically be happy that I, that I went to Saudi Arabia. I mean, people have Saudi Arabia totally out of whack. I and mean, Saudi Arabia is a nice country, very respectable country. Uh, people think it's just sort of like a cesspool of a country. That's not the case. Um, also, too, part of the contract, I don't know if you knew this, but it's not only playing um, for the Saudi Arabian team. They also want him as um, Saudi Arabian ambassador to, I think it's Portugal. He's going to be an ambassador to Portugal as well. So there, there are other um, implications involved in the contract. It's not just playing uh, soccer. He does have to do other things besides that. Yeah, and that makes sense. If if I was him, I would strongly consider that deal, especially considering his position. I mean, he's pretty much accomplished everything that he wanted to accomplish. I'm sorry? Hello? What do you mean strongly considered? There's nothing to consider. Uh, I I would, if I was him, it's like, he didn't officially, uh, like, accept it, but, like, the rumor is that he accepted it. Um, He didn't, like, come out publicly and say anything yet, but I think he... He pretty much accepted it. He just didn't make like a public announcement yet. I think he's waiting for like a lot of the hype and uh, media coverage to die out a little bit. But basically, he was released from Manchester United. And he pretty much, I think at this point, he accomplished everything that he wanted to accomplish at Real Madrid. He accomplished everything in Man at Manchester United, like in the Premier League. Like, there's not really much left for his career. He's already one of the best soccer players ever. He might as well just go play in Saudi Arabia and just get a bag. I mean, he's he's pretty much, you know, pretty old at this point. I mean, he's 37 years old. It's like, it's over, you know. <laughs> it's over. Like, his career is kind of done. 
just go to Saudi Arabia, go be an ambassador, go make a gazillion dollars, do it for a couple of years, and then peace out. Because right now, I don't know if you know this, but his salary uh, that you know he was being paid at Manchester United was twenty-seven million, uh, you know, Great Britain pounds. So, what's twenty-seven million pounds to USD? It's like pretty much almost even, right? So, what is it like thirty million US dollars or something? Or what's the figure? I think it's one hundred five pounds, one hundred five per dollar. But yeah, pretty close. Is, all right, yeah, so right, it would yeah. have been like 30, 31 million a year in USD. So he'll make 10 times as much per year. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I would take the money and run, especially if you were him. And I mean, he's already loaded. So, but I, I would take the money and run. Why not? More than that, you have to think about this, right? $210 million that he gets from Saudi Arabia. You have to think about the tax implications as well. Saudi Arabia does not have any income tax whatsoever, income tax is zero. They get all their money from oil and all their money from um, their sovereign wealth fund. So they do not have income tax. So the $210 million that you're getting paid to play soccer, that's clean after tax. So that's really like making $420 million a year. So you have to put that into consideration as well. You yeah, the only problem that he'll face, NX. though, the only problem he'll face is if he doesn't uh, renounce his Portuguese citizenship. They have a progressive tax system, much like the U.S., but the highest tax rate goes up to 48%. So, um, yeah, he'll pay, like, easily 40% in fucking tax, but, so, unless he gives that up. Um, I'm not exactly sure on uh, Portugal's tax system, but I I don't know if it's only if you only get taxed on if you're a resident in Portugal. So he would be when he'd be living in Saudi Arabia for most of the year. I know in the US you get taxed on worldwide income. I'm not I'm not aware of if that's the case in other countries, but I'm pretty sure US is one of the only countries that taxes on worldwide income if you're even if you're not a resident. So I don't, yeah, I don't so, know how, so the how situation the situation with the US is um basically you're taxed on all worldwide income if you didn't pay any taxes in a system comparable to the u.s so a good example is like if you lived in portugal right like they have a progressive tax system much like the u.s so if you lived in portugal you actually would get a tax credit in the u.s and you wouldn't have to face like double taxation if you were a u.s citizen that happened to live in portugal like when you go to fight when when you are paying taxes um you pay them out and you would face double taxation. But then when you go to file, you actually file and you get like a tax credit um, for the amount you pay in U.S. taxes. So, uh, but yeah, okay, it has so to be a system so. that's comparable to like the U.S. tax system where it's like a progressive tax bracket. Okay. So Portugal, it's on worldwide income because I know like uh, the U.K., it's only on on the income that you make when you're a resident there. So there's, there are other countries where um, it's not, it, you're not taxed on worldwide income. So, I mean, yeah, I would probably renounce my Portugal citizenship if that's the case. Yeah, let me just take a look at the IRS's website very quickly. I, I just want to double check I have this correct. Um, no, no, I know I know that's the case for the U.S. Um, yeah, it's the foreign tax. Yeah, it's the foreign tax credit. Yeah, yeah, I'm just talking about Portugal. I'm not really aware of international tax Portugal. Credit. I mean, you know, that that's obviously Portugal is that that's obviously where he's from. And I'm sure he has a lot of family there and whatever the case may be. But in terms of like tax efficiencies, like maybe it's not worth living there. Maybe it's worth trying to live or at least relocate to a country where you're not subject to like any foreign taxes and then play in Saudi Arabia. I don't know. I mean, but the whole, like you said, the whole deal is for him to be an ambassador to Portugal. So I guess he'll just retain the Portuguese citizenship for the extent of being an ambassador from Saudi Arabia to Portugal. This is what I would do, right? I would renounce my citizenship from Portugal. I would play out my term in Saudi Arabia. Once I'm done in Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, Portugal has a citizenship by investment program. So all the money that I just made in Saudi Arabia, I would invest it in Portugal and I would become a citizen again in Portugal. That's That would be my plan. If I, if I couldn't become a citizen, I mean, I would be bringing a lot of money into the country. So they gladly would basically make me a citizen again. And if they didn't, so be it. I would, go, I would become a citizen of another country. I mean, it's not the end all be all, but that that's what would be my plan because 210 million, if you have a progressive tax system and if it's similar to the United States and you're paying 35% or whatever it is, 40% tax, I mean, that, that's a big chunk of change you're giving up each year. 
on 210 million. I mean, you can't be giving up uh, 70 million a year. I, I wouldn't do it. There's no way I would do that. I would take my chances with regaining citizenship by investment later on. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And one of the other things I just briefly wanted to discuss here is that I don't know if you saw this, but uh, while we're talking about finances and more specifically personal finances, um, earlier last month, we witnessed a situation where we saw a takeoff from the Migos was slain and he was slain over a dice game in Houston. And in the case of takeoff, I was just reading that he actually didn't even have a will. So his parents are fighting over his estate and he didn't even name any beneficiaries either. So everything is going to probate court. Um, so I just want to highlight this as a side note. Super important. Make sure you have a will. Uh, even well, if he's married. Have... No, his parents. His parents inherit everything. <clears throat> so it goes to his estate. Like when you die, right? If you die, and even if you have a will, but if you yeah, but die. Who's fighting for his parents? His mom and dad. His mom and dad. Yeah, who else is fighting for against the parents? The parents are fighting. The mom and dad are fighting. They're separate. Who are they fighting against? Each other. <laughs> oh, okay. They're they're fighting to see who inherits all his money. Whether his mom gets all the money or the dad gets all the money, because he didn't name he didn't designate beneficiaries, and he's obviously uh, oh, rest in peace. Like <clears throat> the late takeoff, obviously, but he didn't name uh, beneficiaries, and he didn't have a will. How do you get that big? Like this is a huge problem where people get really big, right? And they become famous or they become world renowned and they don't have a will or they don't have a beneficiary or they don't name any beneficiaries. It's just like, how does that happen? I don't understand that. How do you not have I mean, people in your ear telling you, hey, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. I mean, yeah, he was 28 years old, but at the same time, like, you have to have the foresight to think about this. Like, God forbid something happens to you. You want the people you love to be taken care of. I, I just don't understand where is his, you know, where are his like financial advisors? Where are his attorneys? Like, where are his fucking accountants? Where's his team? You know, he needs a team. He needed a team. And hopefully uh, other people learn from this because his parent, like I said, his parents are fighting over his estate. The mom and dad are separate. They inherit the money. Uh, and they're fighting. And now what happens is, guess what? It all goes to probate, and the lawyers are taking 30% no matter what happens. So it, it's just a joke, you know, total joke. I mean, if, if you're if you're dead, right? Who really cares what happened for your money? You can't use it. No, but you want your money to go to people you really care about and you want to make sure everyone's taken care of, don't you? I mean, at least for me, I know that with my money, like I have beneficiaries on everything. I don't fuck around. And as soon as an account hits like fucking even a slight amount of money, I, I add beneficiaries. I have beneficiaries on everything. Because at the end of the day, where you're like, oh, you're dead. Who cares? What happens to your money? If that was the case, then... I mean, whatever, then, you know, you don't have to have beneficiaries on everything, but if you could help out people you really care about, then why not? You know what I mean? Like you help your parents out or your brother out or whoever. Like, I think that if, if you had a choice, like when you die and you had to decide who the money went to, wouldn't you rather it go to people you love rather than, you know, 30% to lawyers that you never heard of before pretty much. <laughs> or say you have, uh, I don't know, something that, uh, collectible card or say you have a car that's not in like the banking system i know on a bank you can put a beneficiary on a stock account you can put a beneficiary but stuff like that i mean there's no beneficiary that's true physical possessions it's a little tougher it like a house you definitely need a will um but like most of my assets are in the banking system so it's like pretty cut and dry pretty straightforward but for the bulk of like someone's assets especially if they're within equities or like you said, within the banking system, it's pretty straightforward. You name beneficiaries, so nothing goes to probate and lawyers don't end up getting like 30% of the money. I mean, it's it's fucking cut and dry, super straightforward. And it's the same thing if you don't have a will. Like, it's super easy to get a will done. Uh, you just want to make sure you go to the right lawyer and you go to the right planner for that. Uh, more specifically, someone specializing in estate planning. And 
I mean, you see this happen. This happens all the time. Like people will get a will done, but they'll go to someone that doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. And then the will isn't valid. Like it does happen a lot. It, it happens a lot more than people want to think. So you really have to go to the right person. And, you know, it, it just comes down to like caring about your family and trying to set everyone up on the right path. So that's how I look at it. I don't see any reason to not do it. And a will is like pretty inexpensive. You could get a will done. You could, you could get a will done correctly by a very high level professional for like two grand. So there's no reason to not do it. And at any point you can change it whenever the fuck you want. If, if you're like literally on your deathbed, like five minutes before and you want to change the will, like you could change the fucking will or like your five minutes, obviously a massive, massive exaggeration. But let's say like, you knew you were going to die within the next week and you're like, I want to change my will. My son's a dickhead. And then you could easily just like contact the attorney or excuse me, contact the estate planner and just change the will and like cut him out of it. Like, you know, you could easily do that if you wanted to. So, and again, it's like two grand to get like an actual really good estate planner. You could also just have a, uh, a joint account if you wanted to. Well. Yeah, with yeah, that's called um uh like a let's say something like in equities or like you said in the banking system, it's called a joint with rights of survivorship where your spouse inherits everything and it's pretty straightforward. Um but that's why on most accounts where people like pass away, like they name their beneficiaries and they name their primary beneficiary as their spouse and then the contingent beneficiaries are their children, like an equal share. Uh so like if a husband dies, the wife will just get everything. And it'll just be like, it'll just become her IRA or, you know, vice versa or whatever the case may be, her account. So it's pretty straightforward. Um, but yeah, I just felt like that was a super important PSA to make. I think a lot of people like wildly discount that and they need to be more uh, thoughtful and more cognizant. But what were you telling me about Meet Kevin with his ETF? I heard some news about that. He was a character and he's always up to something, that Meet Kevin guy. Yeah, so he just re he just uh, created an ETF um, called uh, the Meet Kevin Pricing Power ETF ticker symbol PP, and his goal basically in ETF is basically to um, you know categorize categorize um, companies that have uh, pricing power that have basically um, technological advancements that basically are able to disrupt various different industries and provide um, growth in those industries, thus having uh, the appropriate pricing power and some sort of like inelastic demand. So that's his strategy when, uh, when it comes to um, his ETF and he just launched it. He has right now, uh, I think it was launched about uh, less than a week ago, and he actually just rang the uh, stock exchange bill on the stock exchange today. but. That's besides the point. Uh, I think he has $8 million in assets under management as of now. And, and um, so some of his positions um, that he put into um, the fund. Tesla, he has at a 20% uh, weighting, which is a lot for an ETF. I mean, usually you don't go more than 5% um, in a particular position when you, when you, when you weight an ETF. Apple, 13%. Um, Bearish uh, dollar fund, 10%. Trade desk, 9% uh, of the fund. Treasury bonds, 7%. I like that. Taiwan semiconductors, 6%. Enphase, 5%. NVIDIA, 4%. And Embraer, which is a Brazilian uh, like plane company, 4%. So this is sort of like in undiversified fund as you can see since he has like large uh, weightings in each particular position so I, I like to see where um this fund gets to how he does in the coming months and coming years whether he's able to uh, beat the s p 500 is something to track and be aware of uh but right now he's he's burning money when when you look at etfs you got to have uh 50 million dollars in assets under management to break even because you have a lot of compliance fees, you have a lot of lawyer fees, you have uh, just a lot of fees in general. So, and it works out uh, when you times 0 0.0077 times 50 million, it costs around half a million a year to run an ETF. So he has to have 50 million assets under management. Right now he's only at about seven. 
but he only launched about a week ago. So, I mean, I think he can uh, get his assets under management up, but he has a lot of work to do in raising capital and uh, basically, you know, making sure he's able to achieve a good return for his investors. And um, yeah, it's, I would like to see where he goes in, in this in this venture and it, how he uh, grows his ETF. Uh, how is he going to market it? I like the fact that he, you know, he made the ticker symbol PP. Since so, if anybody shorted it, you could say, "Oh, they have a short PP," or and if they go long, people, you know, are going to like it because they say, "Oh, that guy had it. that guy really has a long PP." So it's it's a good marketing tactic. It's not really seen in traditional finance, so it should get. Um, a lot of attention. Um, I like to see whether or not that there's a bit of a drawback or a bit of like people that are skeptical to get in, like because finance typically you have a lot of these old people that are like old farts. They don't like this kind of language. They like very cut and dry. So I like to see how his uh, marketing method that's you know it's marketing through social channels and how it uh, relates to traditional marketing and how he's going to do in that regard and is he going to have some sort of like high uh, customer engagement and high um, consumer uh, retention in his fund or is he going to have a lot of turnover and assets in the management so yeah there's just a lot to look forward to um, how he does um, how he evaluates his investments uh, is he using any sort of uh, artificial intelligence system to evaluate his investments how is he getting his research so yeah it's just something to keep an eye on keep an eye on his fund see how he does and just to track it against the S&P 500 and see how he does it.